Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. You know how the art world tends to slow down over the summer? Well, not here. We've got headline shows with top-notch artists, curators, and authors straight through to the end of the summer. First up, as we return from our 4th of July break, Diani Whitehawk. Whitehawk is included in Rising Sun, Artists in an Uncertain America, at the African American Museum in Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. The exhibition presents new works that examine the question, is the sun rising or setting on the experiment of American democracy? It was organized by a six-person curatorial team and is on view through October 8th. Whitehawk makes works in multiple media that often foreground Lakota art forms and cultural knowledge and that blend both Native American and non-Native interests and art histories. Her work has been the subject of solo exhibitions at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver and the Halsey Institute of Contemporary Art at the College of Charleston. She's also been in group shows at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, that would be the last Whitney biennial, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas, and more. On the second segment, Cy Lewin at the Manil Drawing Institute in Houston. But first, Diani Whitehawk, after the break. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas, presents The Curatorial Imagination of Walter Hopps, now through August 13th. The exhibition explores the curatorial vision of Walter Hopps, the Manil Collection's founding director and one of the most talented and influential American curators of the 20th century. The critically acclaimed show at the Manil features more than 130 artworks by 70 artists. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents... Becoming Van Leo, the first international survey of the late Armenian-Egyptian photographer. Working under a pseudonym, the artist known as Van Leo rose to prominence as one of the Arab world's most celebrated studio photographers from the 1940s to the 1960s. The exhibition follows his career into the 1990s and includes many works on public view for the very first time. Becoming Van Leo is on view at The Hammer from July 15th to November 5th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org slash impressionist. And we're back. Diani Whitehawk, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you. 
It seems like a crucial moment in your oeuvre, or what was just becoming your oeuvre, is when you bring beadwork and quillwork together with painting, because that seems to have opened up paths forward, ways forward, and I think probably even compositions too. As I understand it, before you went to get your MFA in Wisconsin in the late 20 aughts, you were making work that was painting on one hand and one set of work, and another set of work or different work that was beaded or that involved quill work. So I guess first off, is my understanding right? Yes. So I was at Madison from 2008 to 2011. Before that, I attended two different tribal colleges. I got my associate's degree at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, and then got my bachelor's degree in fine arts at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I learned beadwork as a young teenager that practice that was something I was practicing before I had the opportunity to have any formal painting education. But I, I wanted to paint from a young age. I drew and do did all sorts of creative activities like creating was been my favorite activity for as long as I can remember. And I, I knew that I was I craved painting, but I didn't have access to it. Like I never had a painting class at my schools or and, you know, as like a teen, I remember getting some foam core board and like shape acrylic paints and like trying to do some things, but never really executed my first actual painting on canvas until I was submitting my application to get into Institute of American Indian Arts, which the acronym is IAI. And I was accepted in 2000 and I started in 2005. So that's when I actually made my first painting for that application. But I, I, I knew I wanted to paint. So when I got to I, I, I focused on painting. And I also was taking traditional arts classes where I was further developing my knowledge and abilities in beadwork. And it's also where I learned porcupine quill work and parfletch work. So painting on rawhide. And my my BFA exhibition consisted of large-scale abstract paintings alongside cases of beadwork, quillwork, and parfletch work. And they definitely informed one another, at least conceptually, but physically they had been living as, you know, these materially separate practices. Which I think is, in hindsight, really interesting because, of course, you, you, you ended up bringing them together. There's a wonderful Q&A you did with Paul Schmelzer a few years ago, and you, you talked with him in that Q&A about how you had kept these two practices, if you will, separate, and that it was at Madison that you realized that you could bring them together. What brought you to the point where you realized, you know, was it, what is it, was it an instructor, was it a book, was it an artwork that got you thinking, oh, these, these two things don't have to be on different tables or in different rooms? So it wasn't necessarily that I realized I could bring them together. It was almost a, a response out of necessity. So I got to graduate school after spending eight years in tribal college communities. I wasn't attending school the entire time. There's two years of that time where I was working full time, but we lived there still and my husband was attending school. But, you know, so I had eight years within tribal college 
you know, either attending or in community. And those schools are taught from an indigenous perspective. So I'm learning the history of this land base, U.S. tribal, federal government relations, all of that, you know, from an indigenous perspective. I'm learning art history from an indigenous perspective. And then I got to graduate school, which is mainstream academia taught from a Western Euro, Euro-American perspective. And I was accepted into the painting department. And so when I got there, I thought I had to paint. I mean, I wanted to paint, but I also thought, like, (laughs) you're in the painting department. Like, you know, what you're doing here is painting, you know. And so I painted for the first semester. But the Lakota art forms that have been such key parts of my practice and my creativity for so many years, there wasn't classes that they fit or community that they naturally fit within in the graduate school model. So backing up just a moment when I was at II and I had my BFA exhibition that I mentioned that, you know, where these practices coexisted, what strikes me now is that there was no conversation around that. Like I didn't have to conceptually justify to anybody why they all belonged in a singular exhibition and how they were all related. It was a non-conversation. It just was because there it was normal. And I knew that if I like started making a pair of moccasins or did something of that sort, I'd have to sit with faculty and or, you know, present in seminar classes or whatever. And I'd have to like speak about the importance of these things and conceptually justify them and talk about how they how they have a place within my studio practice. And that really, I had a very strong reaction to that. I didn't want to have to do that. I wasn't going to do it. Like I knew they had value. I knew those practices were important and I wasn't willing to like play the game of uh, the conceptual justification model that you have to do in academia with that work. I just, I just was like, no, I, I can't just like start making paramoxes because I would have to explain why they're important. And I, I already know, and I don't want to do it here. But at the same time, like I need that part of my practice just as much as I need the painting part of my practice. When I'm painting, I miss doing beadwork. When I'm doing beadwork, I miss painting. And so it was at that moment that I was like, I have to figure out how to make these coexist so that I can have them all at the same time and so that the practices fit this studio model thing that I'm journeying through in (laughs) academia right now, right? Like I had to make it work within this model. And so it really came out of like need (laughs) as opposed to like, oh, I could do these things. It was just like, how do I, how do I bring all the parts of myself and all the parts of what I crave and what I value and what are important to me into this practice and make them work simultaneously. The first decision there seems to have been that I'm not doing the European American institutions labor for it. Yeah. (laughs) Which I can imagine as a grad student is a pretty, you know, brave decision to make. I don't know if I saw it as bravery at the time as more so just rebellion is not the right word. Insistence? insistence to some extent, but resistance maybe to imposed value systems, resistance to these ideas of like, this is what's valuable. This is what's important. This is the way. 
And I've always like I, I'm I'm hardwired for that kind of resistance. I've been that way since I was young. Like all the times I've gotten in the most trouble in my life is because I've spoken out against something I thought was wrong. You know that I I and didn't always maybe have the most gracefully graceful ways to do that. But and so it was just a yeah a resistance to something that like at my core I knew didn't align with my own personal and our cultural values, but that I knew inherently was just as valuable and just as important. And I just didn't, I, I think it was just like a resistance to playing the game. You know, I'm like, I, I'm not going to play it that way. And so I, but I know I have to play it to some extent because I'm here. I'm here in this model. I'm participating. I want to do this thing. There are parts of this thing that I know are super valuable. And, you know, I chose to be here and I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So how do I make it work? not leave my values and cultural teachings at the door, but figure out how to bring them with me and still speak to this model that I'm existing within during grad school. I'm interested in how you began to migrate beadwork and quill work into and onto, for that matter, painting constructs like canvas. Did you start by painting representations of beads, painting representation of quilt work? No, that came after. So in this, like the earliest phase of this thinking, you know, through how to how to bring these Lakota artistic practices into my painting studio practice, I was experimented a bunch of different ways on that. So I worked, I translated it into screen printing. I used a sewing machine on handmade papers that kind of looked like rawhide. Can I interrupt for a sec? What did you sew into rawhide? How did you, how did that one work? Oh, I used extremely close stitches on the sewing machine to make it kind of simulate linear quill work. So those I have, I don't even think I have those on my website, but they exist somewhere. Maybe we could share some of those images. So I, I was experimenting and trying a whole a whole bunch of different ways. And then one of the earliest, two of the earliest, most successful of those experimentations were, well, wait, there's three, I guess. So the first one was a 60 inch by 90 inch triptych where I decided that I was going to do porcupine quill work in this painting. And I'm laughing because it's ridiculous that I was like, the first go is going to be this giant like, undertaking, which feels pretty thematic to the rest of my the rest of my goals in the studio, which I often end up referring to like referring to as self-imposed torture sessions. But I love them. But so I, I decided that I wanted parts of the composition to be made out of, you know, be made with porcupine quill work. And so I proceeded to do this piece. Uh, this piece is titled Tioshbae. I can't remember if I said that already. And as I was making it, I was also experimenting with natural dyes and trying to kind of wrap my head around natural and vegetal dyes as opposed to synthetic or chemical dyes. And so I was learning things about quill work and dyeing at the same time. But quill work is a really slow and laborious process. And it took me months to make this piece. And I was in grad school. And I 
learned that quill work doesn't fit the academic calendar through that process. <laughs> I've read you say that before and laughed every time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And it's so true. And I, you know, and so that like really like that moment of realization, this thing, like this quintessential Lakota art form that is so like fundamental to the lineage of our, of our, practices in artistic creation and in abstraction that it doesn't fit the timeline of academia and that it like completely contradicts like current value systems around time was like this huge conceptual dam for me where I was just like I got stuck and I'm like oh my god I'm like then I just I like kind of like proceeded to to unravel what all that meant for myself through like the following works and really so much of what I do comes from that moment that moment of like these are directly conflicting value systems and how do I how do I negotiate that within myself like where am I willing to make compromises? Where am I not willing to make compromises? What feels true to myself? What feels true to my, our current conditions, our current environment? How do I reflect the environment I live in today and stay rooted to who I am as a Lakota woman, you know, and, and the fundamental teachings that are built into those practices and the value systems that are built into the relationships that are built into those practices. So, so much of that comes out of that, but back to what came first. So I was doing this piece, it was taking forever. And then I was like, okay, finished the piece. And then was like, I have to figure out how to still bring all of those things with me that came with the process of combining the quill work on canvas. And I got to somehow make it faster to accommodate this schedule and, and our, you know, current existence. And so after that, I created a piece called continuity that is, was the first piece that I mimicked porcupine quill work in paint. So it's like, I can bring forward the motifs and the teachings and all of the things that I know are conceptually embedded into those practices. I'll do it in paint. It'll be quote unquote faster but I'll still have these things that I, that I need. And it is faster than actual quill work, but what I've done with that mark making since then, there, none of that, none of it's fast. <laughs> it's just a little bit faster than the original art form. <laughs> and so then after that, I created two other pieces that I think are part of that, like the three pieces that I, w- I mentioned earlier. There's a piece titled Cyclical, and a piece titled These Roots Run Deep. And one of them is, they're both smaller works, and one of them incorporates porcupine quill work on canvas, and the other one is beadwork on canvas. And then much of what I do today has really like unfolded from those, those first few explorations. So these works date to around 2010, and they are in a pretty extreme horizontal landscape orientation. Continuity, for example, I think is 30 inches wide and is... 12 inches, yeah, 12 inches tall. What about that orientation did you like? And I'm guessing what about it did you find you didn't need to hold on to? Well, for that particular piece, I was thinking about the journey through time. So I guess I needed I needed 
a length to journey through, at least in my in my mind. But all, I was also like I utilized on the left side of the canvas is a traditional motif that you would see done in quill work on on older Lakota works, like on on possible bags or buffalo robes, and. So that's the like grounding in tradition, you know, in, in our historic works. And then as those lanes travel across the canvas, they, they move, they shift, they become more mobile. They look like they're, they look like they're kind of ribbons swirling off into space and they're meant to look like they're either becoming more free and dancing or that they're becoming more disheveled and unraveling. But it's supposed to be all of that. And and it's it's about cultural continuity and the fact that culture stays can stay grounded in its origins and its roots, but it will inevitably shift through time to reflect the, its current environment. And it can't be stagnant; it can't stand still. And so, for that, you know, the orientation of of that piece, that like longer horizontal journey, I guess, was at the time that made sense. For, the telling of that conceptual story. Eventually, you will free yourself from the academic calendar and find ways to get beadwork or quill work back into painting constructs. Was that as simple as being freed from the calendar, or were there uh, other other reasons why why you brought it back? I think it's probably all of the above. You know, I I, I wasn't in school anymore. So I had the ability to give any piece I so chose to make the time that it needed, especially in those first few years post-grad school, because I also was curating and I had a full-time curatorial job. And so I was doing my practice and I was maintaining my practice fully as well, but on the evenings and weekends, and I didn't necessarily have like a packed exhibition schedule straight out of grad school either. And so I was, you know, making my work per the vision of the work. And also, I think responding naturally to just what I wanted to make, you know, and I, I wanted to do these mixed media works. I, I got really excited about some of those earlier explorations in 2010, you know, bringing the the beadwork and quill work directly onto the canvas, I really enjoyed doing that. And I also was out of grad school and working out of my home studio, which was in our basement in an old house in St. Paul, Minnesota. So like I would hit my head on the lights in that studio. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're tall, it must be so. Strange. Well, I, I'm like five, nine and a half. I'm not that tall, but like, I, you know, it's a little studio. So like everything scaled down too. like for a, for a period of time, straight out of grad school. If you looked at like what I made chronologically, I think the largest pieces that I made for those first few years were might've been 48 by 48. There was a lot of 48 every, by 48, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, and then everything was small. Like, those were, the, like, the big pieces I could make in that downstairs studio, and everything else was smaller. So I made a whole slew of works that were, like, more intimate to midsize during those years. And then when I got a big studio again in 2015, then I was able to dream big again. We've been talking a lot about 
how the works came to be made. We have not talked too much about content of the works, if you will. You have made both representational and figurative work in addition to abstract works. Um, there's representational and figurative work in Rising Sun at PAFA, for example. But mostly you have settled on uh, abstraction and, and carefully, mindfully deciding what specific abstract forms mean to you. What are some of the reasons you've decided that abstraction is the best way for you to communicate and indeed to extend ideas? I love it the most. Um, <laughs> fair, super fair. <laughs> and we're done. Um, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, I guess I just, I feel the most joy there. I feel the most at home there. I feel the most inspired in that space. And I think that that makes sense because, you know, as I, as I got to think about that more and more along my journey, I realized like I, I really legitimately come from a very long line of abstractionists and, and from a long line of female abstractionists, like within the Lakota art forms that I was referencing historically, those for many generations, those were upheld by female artists who spoke eloquently and deeply through the language of abstraction. You know, there's, there's so much history and knowledge and worldview and cosmologies and belief systems embedded in that abstract language. And that's something that I'm born to, right? And then my dad is German and Welsh American, and I grew up in the city in the United States. And, you know, if you're at all interested in easel painting and live in this country and are going to participate in any, you know, museums or formal education, and you're at all interested in painting, you're going to be introduced to the trajectory of abstract easel painting as well. So the intersections within those histories are where I felt the most belonging and at home in graduate school. Once I started really recognizing that because at, within the academic canon, these histories are taught as separate entities, Native American art, art by black folks, brown folks, art by women have been historically separated, segregated as something other than art with a capital A. There are different classes in the, you know, like within the trajectory of, of art history, if you're going to dive into art history, you know, those are all separate classes. They're not in your art history 101 syllabus, or at least they haven't been historically. When you go into encyclopedic museums, they're different galleries. They're not incorporated into how American art is taught, like the indigenous art form of this very continent, like the, you know, the, the foundation of artistic making on this continent are not included in like fun, you know, the, the core art history classes. It's something else, right? Which is profoundly absurd. But once I started really digging into, you know, how that's written, what is valued and what isn't valued, what's undervalued, what's othered and why. And I started really thinking about the actual intersections of those histories and how they have coexisted 
and that the storyline of one or the other can't come to where it is at today without those intersections, without those relationships, those intersections are the places that made the most sense to me. They, they most closely align with like the physical makeup of my being and of my life experiences. And so playing within those intersections and responding to the various forms of, of the practice of abstraction felt the most and continues to feel like the most natural artistic language for me. Like every painter, you have moves and forms that really work for you and that you explore and extend and build from. And, and I want to ask about a couple of those that I'm particularly feeling nerdy about. But before we do that, you've spoken in the past about how you're interested in abstract traditions that are present in Lakota and other Native American art. How did you kind of build a mental or maybe not only mental database of uh, forms that interested you and that you were interested in extending? You know, it's not as, you know, because of the way institutions work, as you just referenced, it's not easy as like Googling Jackson Pollock. <laughs> so part of it is informal cultural education simply by being a participant in community and, you know, being around our artistic art forms and expression, learning how to make, to do beadwork and make regalia for dancing, you know, from an earlier age, being around powwow culture. And, and then also part of it is more formalized in the attendance of tribal colleges and being able to dig deeper into research of our artistic histories. And then another part of it is through a whole lot of collections research. I've spent a lot of time in collections and looking at our historic work and thinking about cultural continuity and change throughout time and the moves that our ancestors made in, in those. And then for myself, I like I'm not interested in looking at historic work and then just mimicking it or, you know, redoing somebody else's work from the past. But I there are common there's, you know, symbolism, like core symbolism that speaks to really kind of deep cultural teachings and, and worldviews and, and understanding of our place within life and within life systems that to me are, are really have fundamental principles that I utilize to build out larger conversations. So I'll take some of those kind of core symbols and then uh, create my own compositions. Because oftentimes when you look at like historic work, if you look at, you know, somebody's dress or moccasins or a vest, they'll you know, people utilize our kind of like alphabet of symbolism. <laughs> it's not an alphabet, but I'm just using that as an analogy, like your, your library of symbolism or whatever. But then the moves that you make to put those together in different combinations speak to specific people or specific histories or specific communities or events, etc. And so I 
essentially kind of trying to do something similar or I'm, you know, utilizing certain symbols and I'm building compositions that allow me to speak to specific conversations that I want to have with with other Ocheti Shakoi people, other Lakota, Dakota, Nakota people that I want to have with other native people and that I want to have with broader audiences of the arts. Well, let's talk about some of those forms and some specific works. One of the earliest to enter your practice was a semi-ellipse that you have used in all kinds of works, uh, paintings, monotypes, and so on, for about a decade, since um, I th- since around 2011, and a work called Self-Reflection, one of those 48 by 48 works <laughs> we were talking about a moment ago, and 2013 works like Complement 1 and Complement 2. It's a shape that emerges almost always from the bottom of a picture and fills kind of the middle third. It's a shape that is that of a vamp, the upper part of a boot or a shoe. And I've read you describe it even more specifically as a moccasin top. Before I ask more, when you use that shape, is it always a reference to a moccasin top or has it become a word, a visual word you've expanded and used in different ways? Yes and yes. <laughs> so the the use of that motif came also during graduate school. The first one of those was made for my MFA thesis exhibition. And it was, so the origin of it is, is a moccasin top. I was looking for something that I could utilize as a stand-in figure that wasn't married to the specificity of a human body. So... One of the, I didn't say this earlier, but I thought about it. One of the other reasons that I love abstraction is that humans are, are messy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and once you like put the specificity of a particular human form in a piece, you get tied to the specificity of, of all of the things that embody a human life, whether that's age or gender or culture or race or any of those things that we like impose ideas upon a body and what, you know, our thoughts around a body depending on its physical descriptors or whatever. And so I was looking for something that was devoid of all of those things, (laughs) but that could, that could at the same time, at the same time could indicate life. Right. That could that could indicate like a a central figure that could be emotive, that could carry agency, that could exist and have have all of the things that come with being a human without being tied to the messiness that we imply to our existence. Right. Or we impose on our coexistence, maybe. And so being somebody who likes to also make moccasins. And is super interested in it and, and passionately loves moccasins. That form of the moccasin before you sew it to the sole. So that, that form, that arched form is pretty close to the shape that I would cut out if I was going to make a pair of moccasins. It's not exactly. I've adapted it to be what I need in a painting, but it's close. And it's also fairly specific to a plains style cutout of a moccasin in in the earlier pieces at least and the later pieces they become something else that's a different conversation and so 
that form allowed me to have this central figure. And I also was looking for something that would give me multiple entry points for different audience members. So I'm always thinking about the fact that like, I, I, I want to be able to speak to native people and native audiences, regardless of their introduction or non-introduction to Western and American art history. Like I, I want native folks to be able to walk in the door and be like, you know, see themselves reflected, feel celebrated, feel seen in these public art spaces where we have not been for so long. And so I, I want that automatic recognition for folks. I also am speaking to people who are interested in the history of easel painting and easel painting abstraction. And so that form to me felt like it related to people like Roger Brown or Philip Gustin who are also using... Ah, oh, Roger Brown. Yeah. So also using these, like, you know, strange forms as stand-in figures, right? Can I, can I interrupt for a real quick sec? That's interesting. I The reason I reacted when you said Roger Brown is because when I, after understanding that these forms were a reference at least substantially to moccasin tops, the next thing I thought of was Renaissance profile portraiture. And, and, and so my reaction when you said Roger Brown was realizing I was wrong by 500 years. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it also makes me kind of laugh because I really, I have like almost no experience in Renaissance anything. <laughs> like I'm really not educated in that era of painting at all. And I'll be completely honest, I have almost no interest except for from a strictly like painter perspective, like I can walk in and drool over somebody's chops, their abilities, you know, like the use of light, things like that, you know, like those things, like I can like sit and sink into those things, you know, just appreciating somebody's ability to move paint exceptionally well and effectively. <laughs> I love that. But the history of that whole era, like all the kind of conceptual stuff. And, and you know, I just am so, I just don't have it. I don't have that education. I'm like hardly ever referencing it. Oh, that's it. Cause, cause you know, sometimes the only reason to be interested in something is so you can take it apart. And so that's that, you know, that, that had been in my notes as a possible thing you were doing here. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And so part of this too also goes to the fact that like when I was saying, you know, I, I spent my like undergraduate years in tribal college and then I went to mainstream academia, like I had to do all of my own research and teaching to play catch up or the, what my peers were talking about and what my faculty were talking about in regards to art history. Like I had this really rich knowledge base in native art history, but I had an extremely minimal knowledge base in mainstream or Euro and Euro-American art history. So I had to assign myself that research and playing catch up. And I mostly just like found what I liked and I stayed in that area, which was, you know, abstraction and the eras, you know, specifically the eras of like color field and stripe painting and abstract expressionism. Like those are the areas that I decided to dig into and everything else I'm, I'm fairly <laughs> street level introduced to. <laughs> yeah, but that's like being an artist. You get to decide what you're into. You don't have to be into things you're not into. 
I'm not a, I, I, yeah, I say that regularly. I'm not an art historian. Like I have my areas of, of interest and expertise, but I'm definitely not a historian that has overall knowledge. You mentioned that this semi-ellipse form begins as a moccasin top, and then as you gain facility with it and grow with it, that you began to use it in other ways. What are some of those other ways? Okay, so later on, so I've used that moccasin top in a lot of different pieces. It's existed just in paint. It's existed in a combination of, of painting and beadwork. And over time, there was, I think in 2016, maybe... I, or 2014, I can't remember, but I, I, for the first time I utilized, or maybe it was 2012. Okay, there's two paintings that I'm thinking about. One is called Dream, and another one is called Connections. And in both of those pieces, I utilized the area that like you would put your foot into the moccasin, and I painted it as like a entry point or a doorway, or, you know, a place that you could walk into and enter. So it's kind of it's dark. It's kind of painted like a cave or something because, you know, you wouldn't be able to see that. It would be shadowed, right? So, but that, there's this, you know, that point, that area where, you you know, if you're going to put on a shoe or put on moccasins, you know, the, the, the that portion is painted like a door, like, you know, a, an entry point that you could walk into in the paintings. And then I started body of work that, what I felt like was further abstracting that moccasin top and the use of that doorway and collapsing them into one entity. So they're just the, they're now they're just arched forms. They just look like arched doorways, but they still, so they still operate as both. At times you see them and you're looking at them and they feel like they still feel like the central figure or the central character or and they still have emotive quality and presence and agency. And at the same time, they also look like they could be entry points or, or doorways. And so for me, it was just a, a way to make both of those ideas happen at the same time. In 2016, you bring together this moccasin top form with stripes um, in works such as Untitled Blue and Gold and Untitled Silver and Gray. If there's one thing that you go to more than that moccasin top form, it is it is stripes banded usually, but not always, horizontal stripes. Why stripes? Because I love that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> also a good reason. <laughs> and we're done again. No, I'm just because it relates to our aesthetics. It it 100% relates to Lakota aesthetics, to patterning and banding that you see happen within porcupine quillwork, within lane stitch beadwork, within designs and motifs that are built into those art forms. And when I was in graduate school, in those early years of, of doing that research and figuring out what within the Euro and Euro-American painting canon I appreciated, I started immediately responding to the eras of color field and stripe painting. And every time, not every time, but many times, oftentimes, I would fall in love with a particular painter and then I would start reading on these painters and I would figure out that these painters were 
either living in proximity to native communities or they were collectors of indigenous arts or they were looking at or somehow inspired by our work. And so then I was having these moments where I was like, well, of course you were. Of course, that's why I'm responding to your work because it looks like our work. Like it feels I, I, I respond to that work because it feels like home aesthetically for me. And so for, for myself, one, I appreciate those, you know, that, that era of easel painting and I'm referencing it, but I'm not referencing it from a, like, I want to be a straight painter. I'm referencing it because it still is rooted in indigenous art in uh, the specificity of Lakota aesthetics. And it speaks to that intersection I was talking about that for me feels like the place I, I fit the most. Right. And so it like all, it all comes back to beadwork and quillwork and parfleche painting for me. It's also something that allows an artist to complicate and complicate and complicate. So from you know, maybe a core or original interest in, say, horizontal stripes or horizontal striped forms, you know, in the quiet strength works coming along a little later, now we're getting into 2017, you make them diagonal, you make them wavy, you make, you find ways of adding, yeah, I guess, complication to, to those stripes, I guess, very simply, why was that the direction that made sense to you? Yeah, it, you know, I, I think when looking at your oeuvre, one can kind of see like a paragraph being built here. But that doesn't mean that the next sentence is always obvious. Again, it all comes back to beadwork and quillwork. That's going to be like the answer other than I love it to everything is because when the reason that that like, I think the reason that I struggle with vertical stripes is because it's not how I would bead anything or quill anything like if you were to google just to help your audience members when i say porcupine quill work or lane stitch beadwork oftentimes uh lane stitch beadwork is has been referenced as lazy stitch beadwork so you can look up either of those and it's a horizontally oriented banding of quill work or beadwork to create an entire composition so uh, stacked horizontal rows that are comprised of vertical elements that exist in parallel strokes to one another is like the foundation of how we have adorned our works for millennia, right? So if you Google Lakota woman's buckskin dress or Lakota man's vest or Lakota leggings or moccasins, you'll see, you'll start to understand why I'm so married to the horizontal stripe. Like it's a, it's a, it's an organizational approach to our work that is kind of at the core of how I think about organizing a composition. And then everything also is like rooted so strongly in geometry and in symmetry and in balance. And so all of those things are, you'll see those in the painting composition. So when it moved into the Quiet Strength series, I had been, I had been utilizing these vertical, small vertical brush strokes 
that mimic both lane stitch beadwork and porcupine quill work as like uh, supportive elements within larger compositions that like each had their own specific conceptual narrative. And then eventually, so like you'll see that if you go back to that painting that we referenced called Dream, you'll see that like I'm, I'm mimicking the beadwork and quill work in that painting. If we talked about that continuity piece, I was mimicking porcupine quill work in that piece through paint, right? And so I was using that motif as a part of the story. But then at one point in 2016, I was like, that is strong enough to be the story. Like it doesn't need to be a supportive actor in a larger narrative. It's important enough to be the narrative. And so that's the first time I made a composition that was just fully occupied by those brushstrokes that mimic that style of beadwork and quill work. And it's meant to pay tribute to and honor the legacy of generations of uh, specifically Lakota and Plains women, but to Indigenous women and people at large to the history of abstraction on this land base. Another form that comes into the work, uh, and indeed more recently, just in the last couple of years, is these isosceles triangles, sometimes joined two or four to make diamond shapes. How and why did they emerge? The triangles that meet at their tips, I will refer to it as an hourglass form, only it's a triangular hourglass form as, a per, as opposed to like a curved hourglass. Uh, it's Kapemini in Lakota language, and it's it's a core central symbol within our abstract within our abstraction, and that it has within it embedded within it teachings that speak to our understanding of of life and our place within life. It speaks to ideas of balance. It speaks to ideas of connectivity between here and the spiritual realm or between land and sky. And so it's something that is, it's foundational. And so it's, it's a form that I return to often. At the beginning of our chat, we talked about an early foundational work you made called Continuity. And you described, you know, it's one of those long horizontal works where the horizontal lines at the far right end of the canvas move and take life and become you know, wavy and wandering. One of my favorite works of yours is a 2014 painting called Resilient Beauty, in which that move is sort of back, but in a, an enormously different way. It's not horizontal, now it's vertical. Um, now you have paired it with a floral motif on a, on a bifurcated canvas. What about that original horizontal form worked for you as a vertical in something really different, more complicated, and seemingly, I don't know, it's a, it's, a, it's a painting that feels like a real collision. Well, it's it's supposed to, I guess. You know, it's that painting is halved with red and green. So it's utilizing color theory to create conflict, right? Or, a, or a kind of a fight between the two halves. And... It's the title Resilient Beauty speaks to the idea that, or not the idea, but the truth that despite the generations of genocide and governmental tactics to eradicate or assimilate 
or terminate or whatever era of legislation was happening within the country to negatively impact Native people and tribal nations. Despite all of that, we have profound and prolific artists and artistic traditions that continue in our communities. Our, we are a extremely creative body of people and our arts continue in the face of all of that trauma and in the face of all of that, all of the challenges. Uh, we still just have so many artists in our communities. And so this resilient beauty, the title speaks to that. And it speaks also to these ideas that, you know, continuity and that, that the first moccasin painting that we talked about, Transition, uh, also speak to ideas of change and adaptability and how you adapt to continue. And uh, the, the floral pattern references cotton calico fabric. And cotton calico fabric was, and well, still is, a material that was brought into our artistic traditions, established artistic traditions, and like really like settled in and found its place. So if you go back to some of the earliest trade logs, cotton calico fabric has been like a coveted trade item from the earliest logs, and we still use it. But it also has, because it's been utilized in in our dressmaking and, and outfit making and for so long, that now it also, it feels old school. So like it has this idea or has the ability to kind of summon memories of relatives or eras. And so the floral pattern on there that's on the right hand side of the, the painting, it's that is a cotton calico fabric pattern. But the flowers are painted in a way that they look like they're peeling up off the canvas. And then the quill worker, the lane stitch beadwork references that are are kind of coming down like a beaded curtain or something on the left. Those lanes are also peeling up and moving. And so the idea was that none of those elements, they may change through time and, and culture adapts and changes through time, but they refuse to be stagnant. And the shadows that kind of activate both the textile references and the curling movement you just referenced are, um, are bravura. They reveal the painting nerd. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot, it was a lot of fun to paint. Um, I really, I really enjoy utilizing painted illusion and the implication of like shallow depth that you can kind of you feel like you can get into a painting, or you could, you know, makes you want to like want to go up there and stick your hand in there. Or you know, I, I love the idea that of these illusions of depth. And I, I work really hard for all of my works to have movement, to have, you know, when you stand in front of them, they feel activated. I always respond to paintings that I've, the create attention that wherein I want to touch the painting and know that if I were to do that, I should be shot. Yes. No, I, I think if you want a pet in artwork, it's generally <laughs> fairly successful. <laughs> Finally, I read an interview you did a little while back with art educator Frank Juarez in an art education publication called School Arts, in which you talked about how, at least when you did this interview, you maintained a studio where you make paintings and whatnot, the stuff we're talking about here today, and that you also maintain a 
mental and physical space for yourself to make objects, particularly objects made with beadwork at home, and that you kind of intend that stuff you make at home for as kind of a cultural practice line of, of, of your making, as opposed to the studio space where you make stuff that goes to galleries and museums. I was wondering if you, you know, even as you've exploded in popularity and, and public import in recent years, if you've maintained that dual practice, that bifurcation, and if you do, why? Uh, to be completely honest, I haven't had a whole lot of time. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's it's it's a that's a sad reality right now. My daughter, me and my daughters, we were just at the Hinkley Powell this past weekend. You know, a lot of the things that I make at home that that I referenced in that article that are that are for cultural practice. When I'm speaking about that, I'm I'm speaking about like. I'm, I'm making our regalia for cultural participation. So dancing at a powwow or ceremony or, or you know, specific cultural practices. And those things exist. They're, they're different from studio practice, right? My And so me and my girls were at a powwow this past weekend and my oldest daughter and I were planning and plotting her next outfit. And we got home and we were talking about the fact that my youngest daughter has now grown into one of my oldest daughter's dresses and she can use that. But I need to make her new moccasins and my oldest daughter needs new new gear as well. But the reality is it is it is increasingly hard to make time for that as my studio practice grows. Right now I'm just really working very hard on balance, life balance. So making, you know, all the time that the studio life needs and, and takes to to do it and do it successfully and keep up with what the market demands. And that feels icky for me to even say, but when I say market, I'm saying that very largely and like participation. If you're going to participate in museum and gallery exhibitions and spaces, that's what I'm talking about. It has a certain speed, a certain expected speed and a certain expected output and like quantity of output so that you can say yes to the various opportunities so that you can stay as an active participant. And some of the things that I make take most of the things that I make already in the studio practice take a very long time. And so I'm already at a bit of a disadvantage because I can't just crank out tons of inventory. And so it takes me a lot to figure out just the life balance of of maintaining everything that the studio needs to continue to be, you know, continuously self-sufficient over time, to sleep enough, to exercise enough, and to give my family the time that they need. And the, the more success that the studio takes, it like takes all my creative time and juices that I give everything to it, you know, and I haven't had as much time for regalia making. And there's a part of me that feels sad about that. And then a part of me that knows that it doesn't necessarily have to be that way forever. But for right now, that's kind of where things have been for for this period of time. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop making our regalia or stop that part of my practice. It's not like I've abandoned it forever. But right now, it has been more studio heavy. Diani Whitehawk, thanks very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to be able to talk to you, Tyler.
This program is sponsored by Getty, presenting the Art and Ideas podcast. Join Getty curator Laron Brooks for a special miniseries featuring three renowned Black poets. Hear Claudia Rankin, Terrence Hayes, and Kevin Young discuss the intersections of poetry and visual art and how they make sense in an uncertain world. These wide-ranging conversations move from Prince's ever-changing style to philosophies of teaching to 18th-century cosmologies and Black Twitter. They also ponder questions like, how much courage does it take to be an artist? And is it radical to record your daily life? Listen now on your favorite podcast app or visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Enter the Mirror at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago is only here until July 23rd. Enter the Mirror calls us to acknowledge the truths that are difficult or unpleasant to see. Grappling with violence, trauma, corruption, historical distortion, and abuse of power, Enter the Mirror calls on us to see our complicity in the world around us, as reflected in the powerful work of 20 artists. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago at mcachicago.org. The exhibition Southern Modern, organized by the Mint Museum in collaboration with the Georgia Museum of Art, is on view at the latter through December 10th. Southern Modern is the first project to comprehensively survey the rich array of paintings and works on paper created in the American South during the first half of the 20th century. Featuring more than 100 works of art drawn from public and private collections across the country, it provides the fullest, richest, and most accurate overview to date of the artistic activity in the South during this period and illuminates the important and hitherto overlooked role that it played in American art history. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Southern Modern or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Faye Heavy Shield Confluences, curated by Tamara Schenkenberg, on view now through August 6th. Confluences features a selection of Faye Heavy Shield's drawings and sculptures from the 1980s to the present, alongside two commissions responding to landscapes and histories of the greater St. Louis area. During a career that spans more than 30 years, Heavy Shield's work draws upon her family histories, traditional Gaina stories, language, and knowledge, as well as childhood experiences in the residential school system. The spare power of the prairie landscape of her home community informs Heavy Shield's poetic, often minimal aesthetic vocabulary and use of humble materials. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's Digital Guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. This digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit then easily access helpful insights on-site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Kelly Montana, the curator of Cy Lewin, The Parade, which is at the Manil Drawing Institute in Houston through September 3rd. The parade is an epic narrative that unfolds across 63 drawings. Lewin was a Polish-born immigrant who lived and worked in New York and Pennsylvania. He witnessed the liberation of the Buchenwald concentration camp in 1945 while serving in the United States Army. In the 1950s, he published a graphic novel that responded to the horrors he encountered as part of his wartime experience. This exhibition in Houston is the first in the United States to bring together the complete set of works from the parade. Kelly Montana, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for having me. 
I suspect that for much of our audience, this exhibition is an introduction to Cy Lewin, who lived a fascinating life and who made work much informed by it. So who was he and how did he come to the U.S.? Cy Lewin was a Polish Jewish refugee to the United States, and he came as a teenager just a few years before the world was launched into its second world war. He made art his entire life and made art once he landed in New York, but his family fled numerous instances throughout Europe, which is how he found himself there. He spent just the first few years of his life in Poland and his family fled pogroms and they went to Germany where their sense of safety was very short-lived. Cy Lewin spent his childhood immersed in art and museums. They went to Germany for the intellectual culture there, but were soon subjected to anti-Semitic violence. And as a young person, he witnessed the rise of the SS and military parades and public displays that were meant to in, intimidate him and his family and recruit community around him to ostracize people like him. Before the war, did he have any art training, art education? Very little. He he really pinpoints a moment when he was quite young and very, very sick and had to actually have a long-term stay at a hospital. So he credits a nurse there as giving him paper and things to draw with as being this very illuminating moment for him. He really realized that he wanted to turn to art. So he had some training but never went to, as a young person, didn't have any kind of formal practice in that regard. The work Lewin makes in your exhibition dates to around 1950. So before 1950 is, of course, World War II. Lewin is in his late 20s, I guess, as the war is, is going on. How did he spend the war? Cy Lewin spent the war as a member of the U.S. Army. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1942 and received special training at Camp Ritchie, Maryland, and became what was therefore known as a Ritchie boy. These were a number of military personnel that either enlisted or were recruited specifically for their language skills. So people that spoke German, French, different European languages, and were trained in translation, interrogation, intelligence gathering, and a very high percentage of the people trained at Camp Ritchie were refugees. They were Jewish people that had fled from Europe, and that's why they were, in fact, in the United States. And many of them felt compelled to go back and fight these forces that were ensnaring and entrapping their families that were in Europe the forces that they themselves had fled. For Siluan, this was very intense experience for him in the sense that he had always identified as a pacifist. So it was a really difficult decision for him to make to elect to serve in the military. And he saw combat in Normandy. He witnessed the liberation of the Buchenwald concentration camp. So he experienced very intense trauma and saw things that only 
ultimately reinforced his pacifism and a hope for a world without this kind of war and violence. Do we know if he took notes, made drawings, did or made anything in Europe in the 40s that led to the work on view now? There are some sketches that I know about, sketches of fellow soldiers, soldiers in boats. I would say nothing that I see that is evocative in the parade. The parade, when he turns to this body of work that revisits this history that he witnessed and the violence he lived, he's really looking to the form of the wordless novel as it was known in the early 20th century in Europe. So he was looking to the kind of art that he grew up with as a young boy. Wordless novels promoted by people like Franz Masriel, who was really the titan of the form, his most famous book is Passionate Journey, and it's a book, it's woodcuts published as, as a wordless narrative. So he's really resurfacing a form that was deeply important to him as a young person and revisiting that graphic quality, even though by the 1950s, when he's making this, it had really fallen out of favor. It fallen out of popularity, I should say, a wordless novel in the form that he made it. And I probably should have said this a moment ago, but he's making the 63, I think it is, drawings that make up the parade. He's making those back in the U.S. Exactly. So what was the genesis of this project? Does Lewin make these drawings because he has a book contract, because he hopes to have a book contract, because he sees them as drawings that individually hold their own on a wall? How, you know, what, what is his original conception of the thing? He makes these drawings in the hopes of a book contract. He makes these drawings because he wanted to kind of exorcise the things he had seen during the war. When he first returns, he's making large paintings in a very impressionistic style, paintings of seascapes, landscapes that are light and color-filled he thought this way of working may help purge some of that, purge some of that trauma and that pain. But ultimately what happens within the few years after World War II, he realizes that the fight he had such difficulty committing himself to hadn't actually brought peace in the world. He realized he had this observation that the world seems eternally damned to launch itself into cycles of war and violence. And that was the message that he wanted to communicate and turned to this format in order to do that. What is the narrative that unfolds across the drawings? The story begins with scenes from a parade, as the series is titled as. We see children, families, young pets in joy, enthusiasm, excitement, walking towards a parade, you know, flags waving, trumpets blaring. And then pretty quickly, the images start to turn to depictions of a military parade. We realize 
the sense of intimidation, the sense of power, strength of this personnel. And it starts to, the images start to look more deeply at propaganda, the weaponry, the drum beats, the stomping of the parade. And so you quickly get a sense that instead of joy and celebration, this is actually a parade that's meant to promote authoritarianism, demagoguery, and the images start very light with the children. It's just some pencil marks across the board. And by the end of this first section of the story, it's really descended into lots of black crayon, um, obscured, shadowy figures. And so he really plays with those gradations from light to dark in telling his story. As the story continues, we see these young children that have been so excited by this parade, pick up small toy weapons, they make paper hats, and we see these young children become young men and become young soldiers. And they get launched into the chaos and destruction of war. The images start to move into increasingly abstracted images. We see jagged edges, expressionistic forms, and at one moment, we see an image that's just blood splattered against a wall, an image that really toes this line between abstraction and representation and what it might mean to image something as shocking and violent as what he witnessed and what are the stakes of something like that. As the story continues, we start to see images that are deeply informed by what he witnessed at the Buchenwald concentration camp. We see images of murder, of genocide, uh, emaciated, starving figures behind barbed wire. And then as the story comes to its conclusion, we see yet another parade, this time celebrating victory, celebrating the end of war. But critically, those images at the end of the story are compositionally and formally very similar to the images that began the story, which completes that cycle. The story ends exactly where it begins, with people again gathering together around nationalism, gathering together around a country, and it suggests that it's only a matter of time before a country tips themselves again into acts of violence. One of the things that jumped out at me as I looked at the drawings is how much of art contemporary to Lewin's time he was mining. You know, it's not hard to identify ways in which he's informed by biomorphic abstraction or or kind of Gottlieb and Pollock rooted abstraction or in other drawings, you know, then emergent seriality. Are there places in the drawings where you see Lewin being informed by the interests in art you spoke about earlier? Absolutely. There are passages in here where I absolutely think back to German expressionism, the hard edges, the busting apart of shapes. I absolutely... Can I I jump in for just a second about that? You were speaking in in the narrative about 
drawings that seem to show kind of the chaos of war, mm-hmm. um, the, the violent, you know, the stabby graphic violence of war. Mm-hmm. And those to me anyway, are the most German expressionist feeling parts, almost as if he's pointing a finger. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think he, a series like this showcases that he did not want to be contained by a particular style. His reference points were deep and varied, and he was willing and able to engage all of those over the course of the story to run that full gamut from representation to abstraction and everything in between. I look at that image of spattered blood and Mm -hmm. it's also a drip painting. You know, he's living, he's making this in New York in 1950. He's very aware of the prominent artistic currents of the time. I look at the image of the soldiers and their bayonets running together and they come one huge massive spike that's going into the back of a fleeing mother And that's Guernica. I look at that image and the way that figure is curved and broken, I think he's absolutely engaging the ways in which war and violence have been depicted throughout history and really thinking about the political stakes of that and what it meant to each of those artists in their own time as these cycles of war have led to the moment that he was in and lead to future moments as well. There's also a remarkable drawing of a concentration camp that you mentioned a moment ago in in which Lewin has pushed everything up against the picture plane. You know, there's uh, four or five rows of barbed wire, which run across the drawings, horizontal bands. There are these ghost-like figures that are pressed up against the wire. And then at the very top of the drawing, a representation of a night sky where the same stabby crayon strokes that form the barbs of barbed wire also form in negative form stars in the night sky, all of which pushes up, pushes toward us the the emaciated figures in the drawing. Mm -hmm. It's really riveting how he's continued these motifs across each image in the story, but also changes them within a single image. So the way these devices recur and morph and slip into one another into elements of hope and elements of brutality, I think is core to how he's telling this story in images alone. How did these drawings live from when Lewin made them until, you know, now. He was able to exhibit a selection of these with his gallerist Lottie Jacoby in New York. And he was able to publish them as a book in 1957. And they were unseen after that. They had very little exhibition until later in life when he was, de- you know, decades later, when he was by that time living in rural Pennsylvania. And our exhibition here at the Manil is the first time the entire series has been united for an exhibition to be seen as, as drawings. 
This is the first time in the United States. They were seen in Paris last year at the Museum of Jewish Art and History. Kelly Montana, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.